everyone. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. I'm Anna Howington. I am Kim Yellen, and I think Anna is jumping right in today. Yeah, I get to start. Okay, well, you know I am just a little fascinated by some of the more morbid stories Mm -hmm. and topics. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So I'm going to preface it with um, just a bit of a warning because I'm going to be describing some pretty graphic medical procedures in the story. So if you have kids around, uh, (laughs) you might want to put some headphones in. And um, if this kind of stuff makes you squeamish, you've been warned. Yes. So proceed with caution. You're on notice. Can't say I didn't warn you. (laughs) So this is a story of the lobotomy. And I was listening to something about that. And then I was talking to my sister um, about something else, about another like idea I had. And she's like, well, you can't do that because Anna's doing something medical. And I was like, oh, oh, (laughs) okay. You could have done it. I think we could have had a thing. It was just kind of like kicking around ideas. And she was like, Mm -hmm. well, you can't do that. And I was like, okay, fine. But good looking out. Tell her thanks. Yeah, I'm so excited. Cool. Yeah. So this is a story about the lobotomy. And it's also about the men who developed this brutal, brutal procedure and um, how it all came about. Um, so the originator of this procedure in humans, that is, was a Portuguese neurologist named Antonio Moniz. Moniz was quite the character. He was a medical professor. He was an ambassador to Spain. He also wrote several books on human sexuality. And he was a flamboyant social life who threw lavish parties. And he was a dress designer who would make his wife's evening gowns. Wow. So Jack of all trades. He did, yeah. he did a lot. <laughs> I can't quite figure out one profession. I so know, right? <laughs> to hear people that like, and they had a social life. I'm like, Wow. That's impressive. I, I know, right? And I kind of, I wanted to find some of his dress designs. I'm like, <laughs> what did this guy come up with? Yeah. Anyway, so Moniz got the idea for lobotomies in 1935 from a Yale scientist named John Fulton. Fulton was conducting experiments on primates by cutting out part of their brains and documenting how this affected their behavior. And I really got to say, that was almost the most heartbreaking part of this story because I I know animal experiments are necessary for scientific research, but it just, I don't know. It was so sad to hear about these chimpanzees getting these terrible things done to them. I feel like animals are tough because, I mean, I, I agree with you that like, you know, it's kind of one of those things it has to happen almost, but like animals don't have any, like, they can't say yes or no. I feel like I that's why it's always kind of like, oh, they don't have the the ability to say, oh, I don't, I don't really want that. Like, I'm not going to be part of that. Or like, and then they're not compensated. They're not compensated. You're right. Right. So, and Fulton's not the worst guy in this story. I'll just, I'll just start by saying that he, uh, he's, he's really not the, the, the bad person in the story. He, he was doing these experiments on chimpanzees because at the time they were just starting to map how the different parts of the brain functioned. Dr. Fulton found that when he removed the entire frontal lobe from these chimpanzees, they became docile and calm, and they uh, stopped all their destructive behavior, and the animals became much easier to control after that. When Moniz first learned of Fulton's experiments with these primates, he 
uh, and Moniz had actually been doing uh, some very important work in the field at this time as well. Uh, he had almost won the Nobel Prize for his invention of cerebral angiography, which is a method that is used to detect tumors and aneurysms in the brain. It was essentially this dye that he injected into a neck vein, and then it would flood the brain. And this dye could be viewed on an x-ray showing possible blockages. Don't they still kind of do something with dyes? Yeah, yeah. they do. And, and like I said, this, this was really important work. It led the way for a lot of the imaging practices that we still use today. So he was doing some good things. He was trying, yeah, he was trying to, to figure this out. Yeah. Um, he, he, he does some not so good things after this, but, <laughs> um, so after meeting Fulton, Moniz developed a theory and this theory wasn't based on any studies or empirical evidence. He just thought that depressed and schizophrenic patients suffered from a misfiring of synapses in the frontal lobe. And even though he had no way of identifying which synapses were supposedly misfiring, he came up with this procedure that would sever the frontal cortex from the rest of the brain. So he figured that's where it was happening. And the best option was to just not have it be a part of the brain anymore. Exactly. That was. Yeah. Cool. So he saw that when Fulton removed this whole frontal lobe from these chimpanzees, that they became docile, easy to control. You know, they weren't like, I guess, flinging shit anymore or whatever it is that, <laughs> you know, angry chimpanzees yeah, do. do. <laughs> and so he was like, oh, you know what? I could use this in my patients. Right. That seems like a great next step. Good, yeah. good thinking. A bit, a bit of a jump. Um, <laughs> yes. It's important to remember, though, that like at this time, despite considerable risk that it posed to patients, there was an overall acceptance of many extreme treatments like shock therapy. And this helped to accommodate these psychiatrists to pursue ever more drastic forms of medical intervention. Where was this? You said it was in Portugal? He was in Portugal. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Was he doing this in Portugal? Yeah, or? He, he does this in okay. Portugal. Yeah. <laughs> I've looked into psychology a little bit, and they always talk about that, that the really good information is from, like, Russia in the 70s. Because oh. there wasn't the same kind of, like, in the United States, we have all these laws that are kind of put in place to protect people mm -hmm. that are getting, like, quote-unquote experimented on. Mm -hmm. And so it's, you know, when you remove that factor, when you remove... Uh, you know, maybe we should all not cut out people's brains. You do actually learn a lot about people. Yeah. I imagine in the 30s, there weren't a lot of protections in place. Mm -hmm. But yeah, and the, the U.S. did not do a great job of regulating this. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And we'll, we'll get to that in just a little bit, because the United States is where the most lobotomies happen. So, oh, wow. But right now we're still in Portugal. We're still with Moniz. Um and okay, so at this time, there were kind of two schools of thought when it came to psychiatric treatment. On the one side, you had the Freudian school of thought, which was that in order to treat people experiencing mental illness, uh, you needed to like go through psychotherapy, basically like talk about it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the other school of thought was that, um, and the one that Moniz subscribed to, was that the problem was with the brain itself. And it could really only be cured through medical intervention. Isn't that still kind of... Yeah. Neither yeah. one of these is wrong. Right. And, like, both paths have led to treatments that we use today. But as you'll see, Moniz and other proponents of this procedure, they just, they really went too far. Right. In one direction. Like, I, one direction, I mean, I feel yeah. like dealing with the brain and, and psychological issues that, like you said, like, some are 
you know, we just need to sit down and talk about this and you need to talk mm-hmm. to somebody who's giving you some tools to mm-hmm. to get through your life better. And then some are things chemically happening yeah. in your brain wrong. Yeah. The thing about this is, is that this happened really fast. Like only four months after meeting Fulton, Moniz decided to attempt a similar procedure on a human patient. Oh my God. Yeah. It was, <laughs> he went to it real fast. Compared to like now where it takes years, like years and years. Well, now in the United States, anyways, I guess they can't. I don't know what happens in Portugal. I imagine it's similar, though. Like Mm -hmm. now it takes like if you have a medicine, it takes years and years and years to like go through all these trials and yeah do all yeah that's crazy yeah. and it should like, sure it sh- it absolutely should yes <laughs> yeah I don't know what was what the regulations were like back then but it doesn't seem like there were a lot of them no so he decides to attempt this and he lacked training in neurosurgery he was just he was just like a scientist but he didn't have the ability to conduct the surgery so the procedure was actually performed by a, a lab assistant and they what they did is they drilled two holes through the temples of this, the woman that they did this first procedure on. She was a six-year-old former sex worker who suffered from six? psychosis. How old? Sorry, how 60. old? 60. 60. Oh, so no, not six. And I was like, oh, whoa, wait. <laughs> no, no, no. Okay, she 60. was, a, she okay. was a, yeah, she was 60 years old. She was a former sex worker and she had like these problems with psychosis. I wonder if it was um, syphilis. Is it syphilis that makes you go crazy? Oh, maybe. I don't know. It doesn't really give us a lot of information based on her. So of course not. (laughs) She could have been like suffering from it her whole life or maybe it was a new development. Mm -hmm. You know, I don't I don't think I don't know what they checked for that. They seem to kind of rush to this anyway. So yeah, they're just like, you're having problems with your brain. Come here. We've got a great. Yeah. Great idea. (laughs) We've got a cure for you. Yeah. Um. So they destroyed the nerve connections from the frontal lobe to the rest of the brain with injections of pure alcohol. Ugh. Oh, my yeah. God. <laughs> and the patient's symptoms of psychosis did stop. She, I can't believe she lived. She lived through She this? lived. She oh, lived. But goodness. it also completely depersonalized her. Right, All yeah. of her personality traits and emotions basically just disappeared. And she was kind of just like a shell of herself after that. Um. Yeah, it's really sad. Yeah. Moniz continued to perform this operation on 19 more patients. And concurrently, he developed his methods over that time. Um, I wonder if he considered that a success. Like if oh, he, yeah. if he like, yeah, continued yeah, yeah. to do it, it sounds like that was that was what they wanted. Like they wanted her to. Yeah. I mean, and as hmm. we get further into these stories, you'll see like these doctors, they really did believe like that they were totally successful, even though there was a lot of evidence to the contrary. Now, Moniz, Mm -hmm. he didn't do as many of these as the next guy, but still, uh, he ended up uh, settling on what was uh, called the the tool that he used. It was called a Leucotone, and it's this long metal tool about 4.3 inches in length and about half an inch in diameter. And he would, you know, drill those holes into the side of people's skulls and then use that tool to go in there and sever the nerve. Wow. Um, uh, he called this procedure a lacotomy, luco from white matter in Latin and tome meaning knife. Hmm. Uh, he first published his findings in 1937. The purpose of this operation was to lessen the symptom of mental disorders, but this was accomplished at the expense of a person's personality and intellect. And they found that right from the get-go. That that you you couldn't have both. You couldn't. 
Yeah, no. The, like it was like they were just basically like taking the person out of themselves. Wow. It produced what is called a flattening effect or sometimes referred to as emotional blunting, which is a condition of reduced emotional activity. It manifests in people as a failure to express feelings either verbally or non-verbally, especially when talking about issues that would typically be expected to engage the emotions. Expressive gestures are rare and there is little to no animation in facial expression or vocal inflection. Wow. So that's what it did to people. Um, In 1939, this is just an aside, Moniz was shot multiple times by a schizophrenic patient and subsequently confined to a wheelchair. Oh, wow. So he didn't have a great ending. No. But... And wow. here, here's the kicker. Okay. Uh, he was given the Nobel Prize for Medicine in 1949 for the leucotomy, citing its therapeutic value in treating psychological disorders. Many wow. people, yeah, many That's people crazy. now consider this to be one of the worst Nobel prizes ever awarded. One of the, like, are there other? What are the other? I think there might be some other pretty bad ones. What's the second runner-up for worst Nobel Prize know. given? I don't know. I'm sorry. I should have yeah. looked that up. Like, did Hitler get the know about that would be, or I wonder what else is like, did nothing else happen in science that year that they're like, oh, I guess guess not. And I mean, he was nominated for it for his, uh, for his work on the dye looking into, I forgot what I just called it. I had it written down. (laughs) Let me find it again real quick. I can't find it. The thing with (laughs) the the dye. (laughs) It was called, it was called something. Angiography. The cerebral angiography. That's what it was called. Okay. Didn't even need to look it up. Had it right there. Perfect. Um, And my frontal lobe. (laughs) (laughs) That I still have intact. Thank God. Yeah. Um, (laughs) Thankfully, nobody came along in the. Well, exactly. that maybe that you you just weren't alive in the 40s. Hey, man, there were times in my life where somebody might have suggested that. I, I totally agree. They're like, you're you're just too much. You're too much. Yeah. 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 And we'll we'll get to how this affected women during that time, because it was I'm sure it was great. Right. It was, oh, yeah, it was great for us. It was a very big step forward for women. Great for us, ladies. Yeah. Yeah, I'm sure. Um. Moni's work caught on in the U.S. of A. after it was championed by a neurology professor named Dr. Walter Freeman. Now, this guy. <laughs> now, this guy. This guy's a, he's a, a he's a winner. doozy. Mm. Not, yeah, something. He's something. Mm-hmm. Um, Dr. Freeman was the medical director at the research laboratories in the Hospital for the Insane in Washington, D.C., also known as St. Elizabeth's. And isn't that crazy that they used to call it the Hospital for the Insane? Yeah, that's like, <laughs> that's, that's always weird to look back at the, like, names they had for things that you're just like, why was that okay to say that? Like, yeah, yeah. I guess maybe it didn't carry the same connotation it does today. Maybe it was more of a medical term to people. I don't right, know. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that's how most things kind of move is these words that that were just used in everyday vernacular that like now we're like, uh, don't don't call people. We can't that. say that. Let's not. Yeah. <laughs> but like the in the 20s or the 30s or they're like painting it on a sign, a government building in Washington, D.C. Yeah. This yeah. is fine. That's what it was called. And this was a terrible place. Um, I'm sure. There were not a lot of treatments for patients with psychiatric disorders. And the hospital was basically just a large warehouse where they locked in all of these people suffering from mental illnesses until the people either died or they were able to convince the doctors that they were well enough to be let back out into society. Oh, 
There is a book. Oh God, I can't remember. I think it's called the psych. Is it called the Psychopath Test? Oh, I'm reading a book right now about psychopathy. It's called yeah. Without a Conscience. Oh, um, yeah, it's crazy. But um, I don't know. Is it, you're maybe you're talking about another one? No, I I think it's called the Psychopath Test, and it's about how you prove that you're sane. Like if somebody came up to you and was like, "You're insane. We're putting you in this in this home." How would oh. one prove that? They're, like, what is that like? benchmark that we decide oh this person is sane and this person isn't and I think the guy like somehow he convinced people that he was crazy and they sent him to one of the to Mm -hmm. and then he spent like months trying to get out like he it (gasps) was was, because it's like how do you prove like what does that mean like sanity like how do you prove to somebody that you're sane like because they thought that he was that he was like faking sanity. Like they thought that he oh was just. Oh my God. It was, it's a, God, I'm gonna, we're just, we're gonna start like on like the Instagram. We'll, just every, everything yeah. that we like vaguely allude yeah. to. We're gonna be like, this is, this is the name of the book and the yeah. author. Cause it was really, really good. Yeah. We'll put it in the show notes. Right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. This is what we'll I was talking about. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds really interesting. That sounds like a nightmare, like being stuck somewhere you can't get out. And right. I feel like you'd start to kind of like question your own. I, I mean, yeah. Like, yeah. You'd be like, wait a second. Am I really crazy? Yeah. Like, like, are they right? Yeah. Like, I feel like the whole thing, you know, when you like wake up from some like crazy night and then you're like, what happened last night? Like, I feel like the whole, <laughs> like your whole life would be like that. Like, did something yeah. happen last night? Yeah. Like, am I like having these like blackout moments or am I like, yeah, you would start to kind of question. And like, you put yourself in there and then you start to mm-hmm. wonder like is everything before here was I living in a delusion am I right. really like I'm guessing it was like a journalist or something right yes or, yeah, or, like, yeah am I really a journalist or like what is this oh right. god oh, yeah that scares was, the crap out of me <laughs> yeah I'll I'll find out it's on the other side of my bookcase that I'm looking at right now ah, but I, I yeah it was good we'll put it in the show notes right <laughs> um Freeman, this guy, he's a real piece of work, and um, he describes his patients at the hospital as repulsive in dress and demeanor, which, oh. yeah. <laughs> Sounds like he picked he picked the right profession. I mean. Oh, yeah. It, no, he's, he's terrible. Um, this ugh. is kind of our first red flag that this guy is just a total sociopath. Um, there are more of them. <laughs> we'll I, get to I it. Bet, yeah. <laughs> Normally, there isn't just one that you're like, oh, this one thing, but outside of that, he was a totally normal no human being no and the way that he talks about like no empathy at all for for the people in this hospital it's really sad or any of his patients it's just it's disturbing um so there wasn't a lot of treatment going on at these hospitals and dr freeman started experimenting on these patients with things like restricting oxygen levels in manic patients um sending schizophrenic patients into insulin shock using shock therapy for a whole host of psychiatric illnesses, which was a really common thing. And we could do another podcast on shock therapy treatments. Yeah, that was really, I mean, they just gave it to everybody. Mm-hmm. Um, wow. So he was already prone to testing these extreme measures on patients. And when he heard about the lochotomy, he was like, oh, great. Yeah, of course I'll do this. You know, it was an obvious next step for him. Right. Yeah. He doesn't see any moral issues with... <laughs> No, he didn't see any more issues up people's with it at brains. all. Mm. Uh, Freeman met Moniz in 1935 and began correspondence. So Moniz met Fulton in 1935. Four months later, did the first lochotomy. And then within that same year, Moniz met Freeman. 
And Moniz promised to send Freeman a copy of his forthcoming paper on lucotomies, not yet published, and urged Freeman to purchase the Lucatone from a French supplier. So Moniz is mm-hmm. like, yeah, we're doing this. Like, here's where you get the instrument. You should try it on your patients too. Even though wow. none of this had been published like in any kind of scientific journal, they were. this was all happening like within a year. Holy yeah. <laughs> Gee, that's crazy. I know. It's it's bonkers. Yeah. Um, the first prefrontal lichotomy was performed in the United States at George Washington University Hospital on September 14th, 1936. Freeman, not actually being a surgeon himself, enlisted the help of a partner, Dr. James Watts. He wasn't a surgeon? He was not a surgeon. Oh he was just a gosh. psychiatrist. So he couldn't perform the procedure himself. And this became a real problem for him later on because but, he had to use a neurosurgeon to, to do the actual procedure to start. And um, the, the first patient that they ever did this on was a Mrs. Hammett from Topeka, Kansas. And she suffered from mood swings and depression. Mm. She also had extreme anxiety about the hair loss she was experiencing at the time. She was in her 60s and she wanted to back out of the procedure when she got to the hospital and she realized that they were going to have to shave her head in order to complete the surgery. So she said, I don't want to do this. Like she already had this like real big phobia about her hair loss and you know, when they said they were going to shave her, she was like, no, like, get me out of here. But Dr. Freeman promised her that they were only going to shave a little bit of her hair off. And then once they knocked her out, they shaved her whole head, Uh, which to uh, me is just like, it's just a little detail, but I just find it like so terrible. It's like, so like dehumanizing, like, yeah, that she made this decision, like, I mean, it's, I mean, it sounds like at least she agreed to the procedure, which I'm sure was not the case for some of, some of the other oh, patients, no. Yeah, but no, she at least at agreed to this procedure, but then was, and then was like, please don't do this one thing. And then they were like, whatever. And just did the yeah. one, like, it just And lied so, to her. They lied right. to her about it, which is, yeah. it's, it's heartbreaking. It's like, he's, he's a monster. Yeah. Um, they ended up drilling six holes into her skull during the surgery. Wow. Holy cow. And after the procedure, Ms. Hammett did not experience mood swings. In fact, nothing really seemed to bother her at all. No, I, I mean, I think that's, oh, that seems so yeah. crazy that that's like what they were going for. It yeah, like they were, they were just for. going for mm-hmm. somebody that was just, I mean, I don't want to say a vegetable because it sounds like they were functioning at least, but like somebody that was just like a shell of yeah. like somebody with no personality. Like, yeah. oh. I hate them. And uh, uh, she only uh. lived for five more years after that. So I, I don't know if it had anything to do with her demise, but it doesn't seem like people necessarily live that long after having mm. this procedure done anyway. And I well, wouldn't think I so because they don't really understand like how it would affect the rest of the, you know, body's right. functions. I mean, it just seems like it was it was a very, um, and I'll get into how they performed it. It only gets worse how they perform it. Yeah, but, I bet. <laughs> These things never seem to get better. Like, it's never no. like, that's the low point. Let's keep going. It's yeah, never no. like that. This is not the low point. It gets so much lower after Duh, this. Oh, damn. I know. It's bad. Um, so, like I said, this all happened so fast with very, very little research. And um, it was like a year and a half, like I said. And these doctors went from seeing this performed on primates in a lab to just doing it on actual humans. Ugh. Oh, my God. I know. It was awful. It's like terrifying. Freeman and Watts went on to perform this version of the procedure on hundreds of patients. 
And one of the most famous patients that they had was Rosemary Kennedy. And that yeah. was John F. Kennedy's sister. I remember, I, I've, I've looked into her before. I think I've read a book about, was it about his dad? His dad was pretty terrible. Yeah, I read I read a book about the the Kennedy that had the Kennedy family in it, and I had re- I thought I was like, did she have a lobotomy? Oh, yeah, she uh. did, and that's a whole other story in itself, and um, it could be a whole other episode. And I'll just briefly note that she was said to have mood swings and some learning disabilities, but she was like a teacher for a little while. Like she wasn't like unable to function in society, mm. um, but her father signed her up for this lobotomy. Of course, yeah. And it was performed by Freeman and Watts without even asking for her consent or he didn't even let his wife know. So her mother, he didn't let, he just like sent her off to get lobotomized. Oh my God. It was awful. Uh, I always think about that like, I mean, I'm I, I, I'm somebody with a learning disability. Like I have dyslexia and I, I mean, I, I wouldn't say I have like clinical mood swings but I'm a Mm -hmm. woman and like I'm just like what would happen you always kind of like what would happen to me then but I feel like if my dad did anything without telling my mom I think that would be (laughs) I don't think he'd be around anymore I don't I mean it works the 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 same way the other the other way around but yeah I just can imagine one of my parents doing something and not something that huge yeah and not talking to the other one like and uh yeah no it's it's it's, yeah. it's, it's, not I, how, it's not how a good relationship works. <laughs> no. When I was a kid, I, we had some like, I don't remember those like slime things, like those oh, things yeah, that you used yeah, to yeah. like, they, you would throw it at something and it would stick. Oh, so, and then those it's, like, were so gross. <laughs> yes. And I had one. I was, I don't know how old. It was when I lived in Denton. So I was like 10 oh. maybe. And I stuck it to the ceiling on accident. And I like was trying to get it off. And it was like pulling the uh, like the popcorn off of the ceiling. Mm-hmm. And my mom was there. And I was like, oh, just don't tell dad. Don't tell. I don't know why I was so worried about telling my dad. I was like, just don't tell dad. And she's like, OK, whatever. And then she like immediately. <laughs> like there, there was no like. There's no. Yeah. They no, don't keep those secrets. There was not a don't tell this parent <laughs> in my family. That would not work. You know, I think one one day we should just do an episode on stories from our childhood. I and know, right? And just tell all the crazy things that we used to run around. Oh and my do. gosh! <laughs> yeah. Anyway, yeah, no, like, yeah, he didn't. He didn't even ask the mom. He like he just sent her off to do this. And after that, she had to live the rest of her life locked away in a facility, and she was completely dependent on this handful of caretakers. The only good takeaway from this story is that one of her nieces, Eunice Kennedy, founded the Special Olympics in her honor. Right, so, yeah. I, I did know that part, that, that um, yeah. Maria Shriver's mother is Eunice oh. Kennedy. Oh, huh. So, yeah. And she's, that's, I mean, I, I've always been a fan of Maria Shriver, I guess. And oh, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, she always she's she's talked a lot about her mom starting that and yeah. I mean, I hate to like be like, oh, it was. I mean, it's absolutely not worth it. Oh, but like to have something yeah. that good come, out, come yeah. out, like for somebody to take such a big tragedy and turn it into something that good. Yeah, yeah. It's. I think that that is the that is the one good takeaway here. Like I yeah. said, I I totally agree with you. Um, can you put the name of the book about the Kennedys in the show notes as well, so that way. Uh, we can because I want to read that. <laughs> yeah, I don't. I don't. I can't remember if it was. I just remember reading that part, and I'm trying to think if it was. I don't think the whole book was about the Kennedys. I just think it was a book that involved that part. Oh, okay. okay. But I'll I'll have to look back through. I just had I had heard that story before, like in depth, yeah. and yeah. so yeah, I'll I'll try to figure out what it was. 
I think there's probably there's lots of books out there on the Kennedys. I'm People can probably yeah. find them. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> the, the Secret Family. Maybe you've heard of them, the Kennedys. <laughs> yep. No, never. And now Arnold Schwarzenegger's the Kennedy. So oh yeah. Kind of, Wait, no, yeah. didn't they get divorced? Well, yeah. So his kids are Kennedy. That's, oh, I always yeah. think that's funny yeah, yeah. to think about that. Like, yeah, uh, whatever Arnold Schwarzenegger's kids are, they're Kennedys. Yeah. Like, <laughs> that's true. Yeah. Um. Okay. Anyway, so. You know, he they performed this procedure on on hundreds of patients, uh, but Freeman had a goal to simplify the procedure. The lacotomy required drilling holes into the skull, and because of this, it had to be performed in an operating room by trained neurosurgeons. And he decided that he's like the problem with this procedure is that it has to be in a sterile environment. That exactly. was the, oh, exactly. God, what a horrible person! I know. Ugh. So he wanted the procedure to be conducted outside of operating rooms by just psychiatrists who had no surgical training. And he wanted the procedure to be just a run-of-the-mill office procedure, like an office procedure. No, in his office? Yeah, yeah. yeah. He wanted people to just be able to, like, come in. Like, you come to talk to your psychiatrist and, you know, you walk out with a lobotomy. It's Ugh, crazy. That's awful. Oh my god! What a ter- what a trash human being! <laughs> oh my god! He is. He's really just trash. <sighs> um, at some point, he conceived of approaching the frontal lobe through the eye sockets oh, instead of oh. drilling holes into the skull. This is going to get real graphic right here. Um, in 1945, he took an ice pick from his own kitchen Ugh, I- and began testing this idea on grapefruits and cadavers. Uh, good. Those are good. Grapefruits, I'm sure, are very accurate to human anatomy. Like, I'm sure oh, that's a yeah. good thing to start with. Yeah, I don't know why he chose that. I will never look at a grapefruit the same way yeah. after this. <laughs> Ever. Oh, my God. Ugh. Ugh. Okay, sorry. Um, so that's when the name of this procedure changed from lucotomy to the transorbital lobotomy. It needed some rebranding. It needed needed some rebranding. Oh, this guy's big on branding. Wait until I get into that. (laughs) Um, When Freeman decided to use this technique on his patients, his partner, Dr. Watts, was appalled at the idea of this happening outside of a sterile operating room, and their partnership ended. He was like, this is a bridge too far. I was fine with, like, just, you know, scrambling people's brains when we had on gloves, but now I can't do this. So he had, I mean, that's kind of a weird foot to put down, but he, you know, at least he did it at some point. He had a line somewhere. Right. Yes. Yeah. But okay. So in order to complete a transorbital lobotomy, Dr. Freeman would first knock out the patient, not with drugs, but with electric shock therapy. And the reason he did this is because he could avoid having to use an anesthesiologist or deal with any complications from drug reactions. And I'm guessing this also made it more economical. Ugh. And it allowed the procedure to be performed quickly with very little oversight. So he could be basically the only person in the room doing this procedure. So he's he's shocking people enough that it puts them unco- unconscious enough mm-hmm. that he can yeah. drill into their eyeballs to, or not their eyeballs, their eye yeah. socket to get yeah. to their brain. Yeah, and yeah, yeah. And he doesn't drill, he hammers. I'll tell you about oh. that in just a second. Oh my God. This is it's so a, gross. Yes. Ugh. Okay. Yeah. 
So uh, this is, I'm going to explain the procedure. Uh, He would lift the upper eyelid of the patient and place the point of a thin surgical instrument, similar to the ice pick from his own kitchen, under the eyelid and against the top of the eye socket. A mallet would be used to drive the pick through a thin layer of bone and into the brain itself. Then the instrument would be pivoted around to sever nerves and then removed. Ugh. Oh my God. So I keep like holding my eyes. I know this is not the same thing at all, but have you ever gotten eyelash extensions before? Oh, I love eyelash extensions. Oh my God. That even I I got it done once. And I, the thought of like, I just couldn't, it was too much. Like, oh, to, like really? Sit, yeah. Like I can't, I'm not somebody that's very good at like laying still for an hour. Oh, I just nap. It's so peaceful. <laughs> that's what my friend said to do when I was in Japan. She was like, you can do it. And she's like, I just go to sleep. And I, but like somebody being that close to my eye, like <laughs> I couldn't yeah. like, and you kind of can feel it kind of, I mean, not pulling, but like she's moving stuff around mm-hmm, and, mm-hmm. oh, I couldn't, I couldn't do it. So like, this feels like, I mean, that time's. I love an eyelash extension. Really? Yeah. Yeah, because you don't have to wear makeup or anything after that. It's great. I loved the end result, but the procedure I couldn't. It's the same with tanning. I I just can't like lay there long enough to like I'm super like ADD. Like I'm just like, like there's a million things that I feel like I. I just feel like I'm getting cancer when I lay in a tanning (laughs) booth. I'm just slowly getting cancer. I'm just dosing myself with cancer. Yeah. Um, But remember when everybody used to tan? Yes. Yes. I absolutely do remember when everybody used to dance. Like, I don't think people, I don't think people do it anymore, but I remember it Mm -hmm. was like huge and used to go in and they had those big stores full of them Mm -hmm. pretty bad. And they would give you those little stickers that you could put on you. So you could have like a little heart like on your hip or something. The Playboy bunny was. Oh God. All the the girls in my high school were like, look. And I was like, oh my gosh. Cool. Yeah. Oh, the fashion trends, the things that we used to do. Uh, oh God. Goodness. <laughs> um, so basically, all right. So he would, he would hammer in this ice pick into a person's eye socket and then just like swish it around mm. and then like send him home in a taxi cab. Ugh. Like of they would just get would. up and like walk out. Um, <laughs> God. Yeah. He performed his first transorbital lobotomy on a live patient in 1946. Okay. And it's important to note that Freeman was big on getting publicity and coverage for his procedure, and he would travel the country performing lobotomies in front of large crowds of doctors and students at hospitals and conventions. Uh. Participants were so disturbed about how gleeful he seemed to be when doing the demonstrations that they wrote about it. They were like, this guy is way too into this. (laughs) Yeah, it's really disturbing. Uh, Freeman was especially interested in getting uh, news coverage and would seek out journalists at these events. Back when he and Watts were still a team, they once performed a lobotomy on a chimpanzee at a convention. And about this event, Freeman states, and I quote, our monkey died that night, but Watts and I made the headlines. Oh, my God. You're going to say something at one point that I'm going to go, oh, okay. Nope, I'm not. <laughs> uh, everything he does makes him, it makes me like so bad. In my feet. I can't. I know it gives me the uh, heebie-jeebies. Yes, that like somebody. I mean, I'm I'm assuming yeah. he's not around anymore. But like the fact no, that somebody like that existed in the world uh-huh. makes me very like. Ugh. It's terrible. terrible. Is there people like that that exist right now? I'd like you know? to believe there's not. I know there is, but I guess I don't interact with them on a daily basis. 
<laughs> we just this is why we but, need regulations. Right. <laughs> like, yes. It's not it's, can't be a free for all people. Right. Yeah. No more drilling into people's heads. No. Yeah. Um over 490 of his patients died. Uh, just him. Ugh. Killed almost 500 people. And one of them died when he stopped to pose for a picture during a surgery and allowed the leukotome to sink too deep into the person's brain. Oh, shut up. Oh, oh what a... <laughs> He's just a terrible person. He's a piece of shit. Just a terrible, terrible person. 500 mm-hmm. people? How many procedures? How uh, many, four, like... F- 490. He performed thousands of them. But oh, then he would okay. teach all these other psychiatrists how to do it as well. So he wasn't the only one doing them. He was like you know, getting it out there. Um, (laughs) The use of this procedure increased dramatically over the next few decades. In the United States, approximately 40,000 people were lobotomized. Holy cow. It was really common for returning soldiers dealing with PTSD too, because it was like after they came back from World War II, they were having problems, obviously. Right, right. And so he's like, okay, let's just lobotomize you. All your problems will go away. It was awful. I just, I would hate to, I mean... I'm sure you're going to get into kind of the the effects of it later. But I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'd like to believe that they tried other, particularly on soldiers, like on people that have given so much. Like, yeah, uh, I just I hate when people like when you hear about like kind of wartime yeah, experimenting or like I, I hate that because like those they went know, out like there I, and they put their lives on the line for other people. And then they come back home and this is what they get from, right. you know, the medical establishment here. It's really sad. Right. Right. Uh, and it wasn't just in the United States. Um, in England, 17,000 lobotomies were performed. Ugh. And one of the saddest things is that this also includes young children. Of course it did. Yeah. Of course. And in Japan, the majority of lobotomies were actually performed on young children with behavior problems. Hmm. It was really sad. Yeah. I watched a YouTube video of this guy who had been lobotomized when he was like 12 years old. And um, it was just really, it was really heartbreaking but luckily, the one, I mean, I don't know, there's nothing good about this, but the one good thing about younger patients was that a lot of times their brain would reform some of the connections. Mm-hmm. They could get more back than if it happened to somebody in their adulthood. You right. know what I mean? I mean, you know, you've heard about people getting like shot in the head and, and mm-hmm. or the lady that like had scissors in the back of her head and like was just yeah. walking around. Yeah. Like, stuff like that, that like your brain kind of, deals with those things but at the same time i mean you can get like punched in the side of the head and die like yeah this procedure was considered so like barbaric that the soviet union banned the practice and the doctors in the soviet union concluded that the procedure was contrary to the principles of humanity and quote through a lobotomy an insane person is changed into an idiot that's what they had to say about it that's what the soviet union said about it the soviet union said about it Um, By the late 1970s, lobotomies had generally ceased, although it continued as late as the 1980s in France. 1980s? Yeah, 1980s. Oh. I know. I know. It's really messed up. Wow. Um, Close to 60% of the lobotomy patients were women. Um, It was often used to treat, quote unquote, hysterical housewives. Of course. I just want my wife to just want to clean the house all the time and not have any opinions Mm -hmm. about things. Yep. Yep. So I'm going to read you an interview NPR did on a couple who 
the wife was lobotomized in the 1960s by Dr. Freeman. And the wife was only 36 years old at the time. And I'll just say it's it's problematic to say the least. Okay. And this is the interview with Glenn and Patricia Moen. So Glenn, my name is Glenn Mullen. I am 79 years old. I signed the release for Pat's lobotomy. Patricia, we have not talked about it since. I don't think ever. My husband is not a great communicator. Glenn. <laughs> Sorry, I'll let you finish uh, it. Nope, and then that's we'll okay. Talk about it. We can. You can laugh. This is I'll, bad. I'll keep I my mean, comments. To it's myself. terrible. Yeah. Um, Glenn, I don't talk to her any more than I have to. <laughs> oh my god, Patricia, <laughs> Glenn, be nice. They both laugh. We had been married about thirteen years, and it just started. I cried all the time. I was just mentally no good. Glenn. One night I came home and she said, well, I've done it now. She'd taken a whole bottle of some kind of pills. Patricia, that's when the doctor decided it was time. He told me this was our last resort. Dr. Freeman said, you can come out of this as a vegetable or you can come out dead. And I guess I was miserable enough that I didn't care. Glenn, I was kind of worried because the operation was going to sever a nerve in the brain. It sounded kind of wild to me. Patricia, he was afraid he was going to lose his cook. Glenn, and I don't like to cook. Uh. Patricia, I remember nothing after I saw Dr. Freeman. I don't remember going into the hospital or having it done or how long I was there. That's all gone. Glenn, we were coming back from San Jose after the operation, and Pat informed me that she couldn't wait to get home because she wanted to file for divorce. Patricia, hmm, I don't remember that at all. I don't think I said it. Glenn, I think I just went on driving and ignored the situation and began to wonder to myself how much good did this operation even accomplish. Really, I can see no changes now in most areas except she is much easier to get along with. Patricia, I was a more free person after I'd had it, just not to be concerned about things. I just went home and started living. I guess that's the best I can say. I was able to get back into taking care of things and cooking and shopping and that kind of thing. Glenn, delighted the way it all turned out. It's been a good life. Is that, are we done now? That we are done now. Oh my God. You can. (laughs) Every sentence. I was like, no. Yep. Uh, Yep. Wow. So those are the type of people that were getting this procedure done. I mean, I think there were all types, but that was certainly one type. Wow. That's... And it's like, yeah, dude, like she was probably upset because she was fucking married to you. Like, my God. Right. That might have been her first problem is yeah. that you were concerned about losing your cook because you don't like to cook when yeah. your, your wife is getting and having a nervous breakdown. Oh, my God. God, <laughs> that's so I know. upsetting. Ugh. There have been calls for the Nobel Foundation to rescind the prize that awarded to Moniz for developing the lobotomy. But the foundation declined to take action and has continued to host an article defending the results of this procedure. Which is crazy. (laughs) Like, because it's like, come on, people. Like, you're clearly backing the wrong horse here. Like, this is insane. Right, right. I mean, I don't don't think that it's, you know, I, I kind of understand the philosophy of, like, this was what they thought then. Like, they really thought that this would help in the 40s or whatever. Mm -hmm. But I think that you should also be able to look back at history and say, yes, this was normal, but it wasn't right. Like, it was never right. 
Yeah. Um, no, it was really terrible. I mean, and awful. just like the Freeman guy just being so cavalier about it all. I mean, there's a lot of stuff that you can read, um, additional articles you can read about him and how he treated his presentation to all of these doctors and just the world at large about like this procedure. And he he performed this procedure without wearing gloves, without wearing a smock. Like he would literally just bring people in. He would have his, sometimes his son would be there to help him out and hold the people down while he did these like, like electric shock convulsions on these people so that would knock them out. And then he'd just go to town on their, on their, through their eyeballs. It was awful. Ugh. I don't know why that, like of all the things you've said, the fact that he didn't wear gloves grosses me out the most. I know. Not the most, but like. Yeah. That's such a basic thing. Like, basic thing. I know. That's awful. I know. Gross, gross, gross. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty terrible. Yep. Um, Anyway. (laughs) Oh, is that that it? (laughs) That's, That's it. all. Oh, gross. Oh, I don't I, think I have any more for you on that yeah, subject. I'm I'm relieved. I can't. Uh, <laughs> uh, I was just waiting for you to be like, and now we find out, you know, like the. Oh, the yeah. Good no. ending. But I guess there is no. the only silver lining we have here is a Special Olympics. And you know what? Honestly, that is a that's a pretty big silver lining. I'd like to believe that there was something else that could have. Uh, I mean, they do still like they they perform brain surgery on people now mm-hmm. with like uh, seizures and stuff like that. And they mm-hmm. do go in and like disconnect synapses, but it's not, they're not just like shoving ice picks in people's brains and like scrambling them up like they did back then. Um, I don't know exactly how the techniques of Freeman and Watson Moniz contributed to brain surgery today. Maybe there's something, mm-hmm. um, but I couldn't find anything. Ugh. Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yeah, it's awful. Wow. Yeah, super awful. So I am taking a sharp left turn from that. Okay. Um, and I am doing the Centralia, Pennsylvania mine fire. Ooh. So if you tuned out because you didn't want to listen to stuff getting shoved into brains, you can come back now. <laughs> Welcome back. <laughs> Welcome back. Um, so a little bit about this town. So this town... It was originally founded in, uh, pardon me, 1841. It was founded as Bull's Head, which was named after somebody's tavern, like pub, which seemed really funny to me that they were like, "Uh, what should we name this town? And then they're like, oh, there's this bar here. Let's name it after what we party at. Right. We'll call it that. Like a lot of times in Pennsylvania, um, it was founded because of coal. Kind of a fun side note. The town founder was murdered in his buggy by members of the Molly Maguires which was an Irish secret society that were really for um, workers' rights. And they were, I mean, they called them a terrorist organization and something that I was listening to. Um, And then also there's a town legend that uh, Father Daniel Ignatius McDermott, the first Roman Catholic priest who called Centralia home, cursed the land in retaliation of being salted by three members of the Molly Maguires in 1869. McDermott said that there would be a day when St. Ignatius Roman Catholic Church would be the only structure remaining in Centralia. So, yeah. Ooh, this would be where the, like... Is this a little foreshadowing? Yes, very foreshadowing. (gasps) Can't wait. In 1890, the town reached its peak. It had 2,761 people in it. The town had seven churches, 
five hotels, 27 saloons, which seems like a lot of saloons, but I guess that was kind of what you did. Uh, two theaters, a bank, a post office, and 14 general and grocery stores. So the town kind of went about functioning. Um, it got hit pretty hard by World War One, and then by the Wall Street collapse. Um, and so things kind of started to, to get pulled back a little bit. Um, in 1950, Centralia uh, Council, the, the city council, acquired the rights to all the coal beneath Centralia through a state law that was passed in 1949. So they got the uh, mineral rights to the town, which I think is kind of significant. And we'll we'll see why in a second. But okay. still, the the coal mining kind of trailed off and it wasn't wasn't quite this big booming industry anymore. Um, the rail service ended in 1966. Um, and then in 1962, things took a crazy turn. OK, there was a fire in the landfill and there's kind of a, a couple different theories about how this fire started. Somebody said that it was just them just the city council trying to clean up for a memorial day parade um and then there's another theory that's just what you did just set stuff on fire that you don't want there anymore um and then there was another theory that a trash hauler dumped hot ash and coal and discarded it in this trash pit um but either way it seems that this fire was started by the trash pit and the trash pit was right next to an opening of one of the coal mines that had long been abandoned and that started the centralia coal fire so um, when coal fires start, this is something that there's a couple other examples of this, but um, when coal fires start, they're really hard to put out because they're underground. Coal burns forever. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there isn't really one way to put it out. And so this fire just continued to burn. They, they tried a bunch of different ways of putting it out. They tried to get people involved. They called the state and they were like can you guys please help us out okay this guy named Derek DeCook who wrote a book called Unseen Danger the Tragedy of People Government and the Centralia Mine Fire said this was a world where no humans could live hotter than the planet Mercury its atmosphere was poisonous as Saturn's at the heart of the fire temperatures easily exceeded a thousand degrees Fahrenheit lethal clouds of carbon monoxide and other gases swirled through the rock chambers oh my god so this was not kind of your normal fire like this was a fire that was going all through the different veins of this coal mine and this was it was it was poisoning the air around it right like so like the town's air quality was plummeting i'm guessing right so it was releasing these noxious gases of carbon monoxide it says lethal levels were found in the air um so pretty quickly on they knew that this was a problem and like i said they tried to get the state involved to help but they didn't provide a whole lot of help um in 1979 which was like 15 years after this fire started it was still going and locals became aware of the scale of the problem when a gas station owner put the dipstick in the ground to try to see how much fuel he had. And then when he pulled it out, it seemed really hot. So he put a thermometer into the tank. And when he pulled it out, it said it was 172 degrees Fahrenheit. Oh, my God. Yeah. So that could have just exploded. Yes. Yeah. I don't. Oh, my gosh. I mean, I don't know at what temperature gas explodes, but I feel like if you're asking that question, (laughs) you should stop what you're doing. Like there's there's an issue with that. Um, In 1980, the Bureau of Mines, the Pennsylvania Bureau of Mines, decided that there was no further action to be taken um, and they should just let it burn itself out. So, like, they tried all these different things. There was a guy, one of the guys said that he could put it out with his backhoe, but the only way that he would do it would be um, if he could claim any coal that he recovered without paying any royalties, which the city was like, "Uh, no, dude, you can't do that. 
honestly, just give it to him. Like, do you need to stop the fire? Like, what right. are you going to do? You know, that's true. Yeah. But I, I mean, I think that the current residents of Centralia really feel like the state knows how much mm. coal is underneath the ground and they want they want it. And the only hmm. way that they can get it is if there's no residents, like there's no one there. <gasps> So it's kind of the conspiracy theory behind this, I guess. Yeah, I wouldn't put it past him. No, that's yes, that's true. So, um, yeah, so there were a bunch of different people stepped forward and then the state just said, just let it burn. Um, In 1981, um, there was a 12 year old resident um, who fell into a sinkhole that was caused, which sinkholes are one of my great fears in life. So (laughs) I it's pretty terrifying. Yes. So he fell into the sinkhole that was four feet wide by 150 feet deep. So he fell into a 150 foot sinkhole that suddenly opened up beneath his feet in his backyard. His cousin pulled him out. A plume of hot steam was billowing from the hole and it was tested and found to contain lethal levels of carbon monoxide. Oh my God. Yeah, so that kind of started uh, the media attention in the town. They were like, "Uh, what's going on in this crazy little place? And apparently there wasn't any local attention on it. Like the local people were like, everything's fine. But like the rest of the world was like, dude, everything is not fine. Like what is going on with (laughs) y'all? Um, So then in 1983, the U.S. Congress allocated $42 million for relocation efforts. So they decided they needed to get everybody out of this town. Um, There were some groups in the town, some people in the town that really wanted to stay. There were some that that really didn't. Yeah. I mean, can you imagine like you've built your whole life somewhere and then some guy just comes knocking on your door and is like, hey, yeah, because of some huge mistake that got made down at this plant, you have to pick up your entire life and move to another county or right. another place. Like, that, that's that got to be terrible. Right. One of the things I was reading said that they were given, uh, like, on average, they were given $23,000 for their house, which even then... Oh, even, in, even then, that's not enough money. Yeah, that's not... That's what they were saying. They said it's not enough to buy a house and, and that it would, like, plunge them into debt and yeah. they didn't want to have any debt. Like, they own their homes. Um, but they, that was what the state decided to do. Um, nearly all of the residents accepted the buyout. More than a thousand people moved out of the town. They also, in something else I was reading, it said when it says that they moved out of the town, it wasn't like the surrounding town suddenly got a lot bigger. So they like went way away. Like they, they left. Hmm. Well, I guess also too, like if somebody came to you and was like, you have to restart your entire life. I could see like, just being like, all right, well, you know, I've always wanted to live in Northern California or like, you know what? I've always wanted to have a little cabin in Colorado. Like, I mean, it's an excuse to kind of get a do-over in some ways. Right. That's not enough money, but, you know. The government's compensating you in some way. Yeah. And so, I mean, to get, I mean, it is a windfall in some sense. Like, it is some money. But yeah, maybe it was just their excuse to start over. And you have to go, because what are you going to do? Like, breathe in this carbon monoxide and like, pass out on your couch one day and like that's just the end of it yeah you have no other options except I mean you have you have to leave like the government is telling you that you have to leave um so by 1990 there were only 63 residents left in the town it's like those people that stay when hurricanes are coming in yes they're like what are you doing like get out right yes my parent when Harvey was hitting my parents stayed because oh no they are those they were like well where are we gonna go and I'm like anywhere, anywhere. what do you mean where are you gonna go <laughs> Um, my, my, my sisters are probably more upset than I was. I stayed too, but. Oh, you did? Oh, Kim, come on. I did, but I, I, first of all, I have, I work for the, I work for the government, so I have to stay. Oh. Hmm. 
Um, but and then in 1992, the government invoked eminent domain over all of the property in the borough, condemning it and the buildings within it. Oh, this smells like they were after something. Right. Yeah. This uh, buyout was a voluntary buyout. Like they didn't have to take it. And I guess that they mm-hmm. they gave them nine years and were like, OK, guys, if you're not going to take it, then we're just going to make this place like totally uninhabitable. Um, in 2002, the post office discontinued the zip code. Um, there were only 16 homes still standing in 2006, um, mm. and that was reduced to 11 when the governor came and he gave them kind of a final ultimatum. As of 2010, there's only five homes remaining. Um, there's Wait, a- so this is still going on? Yes, there is still a fire. Oh, my God. There was... Um, a highway, Route 61, the ground was so hot that it was like melting the asphalt and it was creating these huge like cracks and they tried to repair it, but it just never worked. So the highway was abandoned, was rerouted. You can just like put your hand to the earth and it's probably just scorching hot. You, you could. It, like even in winter time? Yeah. It, That's so crazy. It sounds like now maybe like, I mean, I was watching, there were there are a ton of YouTube videos of people like going there, like travel bloggers and stuff. And it seemed like, now there isn't that issue. Like, I don't know if it kind of comes and goes that like there's times when it's really hot and times when it's really cold, but the ground is still warmer than the air. And they were talking about the snow, that snow doesn't stick around for very long. Hmm. Um, so on this highway, they, because it's abandoned, there was just graffiti all over it. And it reminded me of, um, have you ever been to Cadillac Ranch in Amarillo? No, no. My sister lives out there, so I go <laughs> I go all the time. Cadillac Ranch is these, like, I think it's six cars that are kind of stuck in the ground, nose first. Oh, wow. And you just go and spray paint them. Like, oh. it's just a thing you do. Well, what about that big wall in Austin? They, that's not there anymore, but there is a, there's a graffiti park in Austin. Yeah, that's, a, that's yeah. what I'm talking about. Yeah. Or, I, I don't know. Maybe there was another wall. But I was talking about, like, the graffiti park. I went there not that long ago. Um, well, I don't know. I always say not that long ago. And then I realized how old I am. Maybe yeah. it was like four or five years ago at this point. I've been to the graffiti park, but it's moved now. I think it's still around. It's just not, it's probably not where you and I have gone okay. to it. I gonna say there's a place in Denton like that, or it's not in Denton, it's out in Sanger. And we called it, we used to call it the mouse hole. And you would drive like, I don't know, maybe like hmm, 20 minutes out of town. And then just like in the middle of nowhere, there was like this, um, tunnel like small tunnel that was just Mm. totally covered in graffiti and all around it is just like woods and stuff and it just I don't know it looks kind of cool kind of these like destination places well that's that's what (laughs) I guess that's kind of the graffiti park for those of you who haven't been to Austin Austin has just it's just like concrete walls everywhere and you just Mm -hmm. go and I mean you were you're supposed to go and like paint stuff when I was there there was Mm -hmm. a um, this photographer that was doing these really cool pictures and graffiti artists go there too. It's it's really, mm-hmm. really cool. So that I mean, that sounds like what it was. Um, so it's just a stretch of highway that people just graffiti all over. Now the underground fire is expected to burn for, it could burn for possibly 250 years. And there, the residents that were there now, there were two that were evicted. In 2009, also, the remaining residents mounted a legal effort to try to reverse the 1992 eminent domain claim. Uh, it failed. They didn't end up doing that. In 2010, there were only five houses remaining in the state. Officials tried to vacate the remaining residents and demolish what's left of the town. In March 2011, a federal judge refused to issue a junction that would have stopped the condemnation. So they're the people that live there are really trying to like save their town, but they just can't for, I mean, it seems like the state is like, this is what's happening and this is what we're going to do. 
Hmm. So a lot of the residents believe that the eminent domain claim was a plot to gain mineral rights of the coal beneath the borough. Um, they assert that there is hundreds of millions of dollars worth of coal. Sounds about right. Yeah, just seems like like something that people would do. The, the town is still like for the best that it can do. It's still functioning. Um, there was a regular council meeting. Wait, so there's only five families that live there. So the council right. meeting is like four people because like Jeff had the flu that day. Right. I feel like it's like um, like Gilmore Girls. Like that's what it reminds me yeah. of, that it would be like <laughs> that. As early or as recently as 2011, they were still having it. Um, the notes from the meeting said that the town budget is in the black. So they're still, there they're still trying to function as a town. There was a time capsule that was found that was buried in 1966 um, that they opened a little bit earlier. It was supposed to be opened in 2016, but they opened it in 2014. Um, <laughs> they found, apparently, apparently they opened it because somebody was trying to steal it. And so they were like, oh, let's just open it now because like it's already mm-hmm. been dug up. Items that were found were uh, a miner's lamp, some coal, a Bible, local souvenirs, a pair of bloomers. <laughs> <laughs> by the men of Centralia in 1966. You know, I think um, I think time capsules should last longer than that. Than like 50 years? Yeah, like I yeah. feel like we know what was going on 50 years ago. We have like some kind of understanding. Like right. a time capsule that was like 200 years old? I don't know. 50 years is a little short. There's one in um, the Chinook Mall in Calgary, Alberta that's like underneath the mall. And it's kind of cool because like it's in the middle of the mall and there's like this big like countdown on it. And I don't know when it was, I don't know when it's supposed to be opened and I don't remember when it's it's buried, but it's some really long amount of time. Did you used to, I feel like everybody does a time capsule in like sixth grade. Yes, yeah. You know oh, yeah. I mean? Like that's yeah. like a part of like the curriculum. Yeah. I wonder what happened to it. It's probably. You're going to get an email next week. It's I gonna know, be like, right? hey. Yeah, yeah um. I can't remember what middle school. Evers? What elementary school I did went, you go We went to? to Evers. I went to Evers. Evers. Okay. Yeah. You definitely went to Evers because yeah. you yeah. lived. You lived closer to it though. But we, yeah, we lived but, really but close like to it. But like maybe like a, maybe a quarter mile. Right. Not yeah, even. Yeah. yeah. So I was yeah. trying to, yeah. Evers Park. Do you ever use that as like your, well, I guess I shouldn't say it's like my password. password. <laughs> <laughs> like what was your elementary school? What's your mom's maiden name while we're talking about that? No. Now everyone knows. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to get a, we're going to get a, um, an email one of these days from like the old principal at Evers. Right. Dear Kim. We found this in your time capsule. You have to come and yeah. get your time capsule. <laughs> um, the, the, that would be, oh my gosh, that would, that would make my day. Whoever you are, Principal of Evers. <laughs> Mrs. Uh, Coleman, Coleman was her name. Mrs. Coleman. Well, that was the principal, that was the principal then. Yeah. Oh my God, I can't believe. I can't believe I remember that. I don't remember any of my teachers. When you say it now though, that was right. <laughs> she wasn't that bad. She was actually kind of nice, uh, she, but she was, oh, she was already really, really old at the time. Yes, so yeah, I don't know yeah. that she's still around. I remember, I'm trying to think of like my teachers. I had a teacher named Miss Sane. Oh, I had her too. She was pretty good. I liked her. Yes, she was sweet. She was really good. And then in grade four, I had this teacher named Miss Bridges. Oh, I had Miss Davis. I remember Miss Davis, though. But Miss Bridges was, you know, when you, like, look back and you, like, think about these, like, really influential people that, like, shaped your uh-huh. life. Miss uh-huh. Bridges is, is one of, I feel like Aww. I'm going to cry. Like, she's, like, one of those ones that, like, because I'm, I'm dyslexic. And I feel like she was the first one to be, like, 
you need to figure this out. Like you, you know, you can do this. You can do these things. Aww. The world is not going to wait for you. Like, you know, it's so interesting because out of everyone I know, I think you read more yeah. than anyone I know. I feel like it started with her. Like that I was like, I, this is like, she would give me these things to read and she would be like, you need to just read this. Like, this is something good, like something you'll like. That's so She sweet. just like never... I did. It wasn't an excuse. Like I couldn't use it as an excuse. Like she was the first one to be like, you're, you're smart and you're capable and you can do this stuff. And I don't care if people put this like label of dyslexic on you. Like you can do all of this. Like, oh, Kimmy, you're going to make me cry. It was just the first time that somebody like, I mean, my, my parents are very supportive too. And I I don't want to sound like I like grew up in some weird world, but like she was, she was the first teacher that I had that was super like, you can do this like oh, I love that, that. It, it, it's not a, it's not a dirty word to say you're dyslexic and it's not a you know we mm-hmm. can talk about it and ask for the help that you need but you can do this and so like yeah she's so sweet like I said when you like think about the teachers that really made an impact on you she was I wish there was a way to like contact her now to be like I'm sure there is I don't even know her first name though like you know what I bet my mom does I bet my I bet my mom does too. Actually, now that I think about it, probably. Hmm. I should ask. Try to find this. Let me like. Do you remember me twenty years <laughs> ago or what? When? How, I guess you're eight in grade. I no, think nine? that's kind of what they do it for, right? Like if I was a teacher and somebody and I had taught somebody when they were in fourth grade, and then I got a note from them as an adult being like, "You really made a difference." I think that would yeah give so much meaning. You know what I mean? Yeah, that's true. Like, I can't imagine her being like, what is this crap? Like, you're wasting my time. Like, no, I feel yeah. yeah. that's what they do it for. They do yeah. it to make a difference. A lot of teachers. Yeah. You know. Oh, anyway. Yeah. Anyway, so, so back to, to this crazy town, just to kind of wrap it up. Um, the current residents, none of them are below the poverty line. There is a small volunteer firefighter uh, service um, that's been operating for more than 30 years. There is a municipal building that hosts an annual Centralia cleanup day where volunteers collect illegally dumped trash in the area, mostly along the graffiti highway that we talked about. Um, There's one church, going back to the legend, (gasps) there is one church, the town's uh, Ukrainian Catholic church remains in use and attracts worshipers from the surrounding town, including people who once resided there. Uh, A geological survey found that it's on solid rock, not on coal. Um, So the church is not a danger for collapsing due to the fire. Wow. Yep. So it's still, the church is still there. There also was like these weird kind of things that I could only find in one or two places here and there. Um, They were talking about like that vegetables would cook in the ground (laughs) and that um, the people that live there didn't have to turn on their hot water heaters, that like their basements were just so warm. Um, Somebody was also talking about that because there is a cemetery there. They were saying that these people are getting like cremated from the bottom up. Oh my god! Um, which seem I'm like, how would you know that? How would you know that's happening? But yeah, and that's the story of the Centralia mine fire that is still going on today. Oh so, my gosh! Yeah, I had never heard of that. Yeah, thanks for telling me that. Yeah, now that you was know. Awesome. Yep. Well, you want to do our rundown? Sure, sure. Do you? I'll start. Okay. Yeah, um, I would say my run this morning was pretty good. It was, it's been really cold and it finally warmed up a little bit. And um, I've just, I actually, I've been listening to this. um, I don't know if it's like more than one guy or if it's just one guy. It's this, I guess this um, musician, it's called uh, Caravan Palace. Oh. And um, they have this one record 
And I think the name of it, let me find it real quick. Oh, whoops. I just started playing it. <laughs> I don't want to do that. A sample. A sample. Yeah. I don't know. The name of the record is some, it's like a weird emoji. <laughs> the name of the record is just the an emoji? The name of the record is like a weird emoji. It's like a weird emoji face. <laughs> Sounds like um, like when Prince changed his name to a symbol. That, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It. I mean, uh, the name of the record is just a symbol. It's like this weird like face. I don't know. It's just like the best running music. It's just really happy and it like got me moving. And it's kind of like they use like old jazz samples in it. I just really liked it. And so it made my run really nice. Cool. That's yeah. I always feel like there, I, there are times when I'll download a new song and I'll be like, I just want to run just to listen to this yeah. song. Yeah. yeah. So you found good running music. Cool. Yeah. So check them out. I thought they were pretty good. Caravan. What's it called? Palace. Again? Caravan Palace. Okay. Yeah. I'll check it out. I don't know about the rest of the records. I'm, I'm not vouching for those. But the one <laughs> just, that's the weird face. I like that. Just a face. <laughs> cool. Um, well, my run, actually, I was running yesterday. It's kind of a, a two-parter. I was running yesterday, and I realized, like, I kind of ran by the pet store, and I realized that I had wanted to, that I needed to get this thing for my cats that... I had been putting off. And so I grabbed it and I, I don't like to run with things in my hands in general. And so, I, but I was like, okay, whatever. And so I was just, I just ran back with this, like, it's like a tube that your cats can crawl through. Aww. And it reminded me of when I was living in San Francisco one time, I kind of did the same thing. Like I was running and I was like, oh, I need to go in here anyway. And it was like an electronic shop and I needed to get a set of headphones, like a bigger set of headphones. Mm-hmm. And then I was just running back. And as I was running, I got stopped by the cops. Like this cop pulled and was like, what are you doing? And I was like, you're like, dude, I'm running. Oh, uh, yeah. It must have looked quite suspicious because like I didn't have a bag and I was just kind of running. Oh, you with- like grabbed like some electronics and just like took off out the store. Right. And I was like, oh, I, I, what? Like you're I'm like, running. I swear I didn't steal yes. this. <laughs> yeah. I was like, I live like right around the corner. Like I was just running. And oh my God. I, I was just. I swear, like, I have my receipt and whatever. And he's like, oh, okay, like, I just wanted to check in. Like, you look kind of funny or something like that. Oh, like, my God. Oh, okay, thanks. And then I just, like, just kind of waved. And then I just kept running. I would have been like, you but, look funny. Yeah, no, you look funny. But, it, yeah, just reminded when I was running yesterday, I was like, oh, what is the co-? I know, I know a chunk of the cops. Just working for, for the city, I know a chunk of the cops here. Uh-huh. Also, like you went in and you um you stole a cat toy. <laughs> right. Yes. That's those are high ticket items. High value. The uh nine dollar cat tube would be exactly <laughs> what I would, you know, really cheap things that are big. That's what you go for when you're stealing stuff, totally. right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Those people that go for small things that are expensive are oh, doing it the wrong way. Yeah, yeah. I don't know what they're doing. Yeah. But it just, it just reminded me of when I was like <laughs> running with this cat toy. I was like, I must look a little crazy. Like I just stole this cat toy. But, <laughs> but yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Well, thanks for listening, everybody. Um, please check us out on social media. We're on Instagram at Peculiar Stories and Far Out Tales. Our website is peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com and our email is info at peculiarstoriesandfaroutales.com. And the Patreon is patreon.com at P-S-A-F-O-T. And rate, listen, and subscribe. Yes, please do. We really appreciate it. All right. Thanks, y'all. Just remember that it is far better to be peculiar than normal. Woohoo! Bye!